So, uh, Happy New Year to everybody. Um, somebody mentioned, so you're going to wear a suit coat or well, I don't even know what you call these things, a suit jacket. Uh, is that your New Year's resolution? It's like, nope. <laughs> Just chilly. This will be the last time probably until one of you goes home to be with Jesus. Then you might, well, you won't see it. You'll be gone. So everybody else will see it. So <laughs> anyway, we left off uh, with Jesus feeding the multitudes with the little boy's lunch, his five little barley loaves, his two small fish. And with that little lunchable, we saw Jesus prayed and he blessed the food. And we're told that 5,000 men were filled, plus it says their wives and their children. So it could have easily been fifteen to 20,000 people that were hungry people who ate and were filled. And when it says they were filled, in the Greek it literally means they were gorged. They were stuffed. They, it was like Thanksgiving meal. And um, it was probably the best fish and bread anybody's ever had. I mean, if Jesus made it, I'm sure it was perfect. And um, when Jesus told the 12 disciples to go gather up the leftovers, so each one of them, and these, there's two different baskets. When he feeds the 5,000 men, they're like a large laundry basket. There's a different word when he feeds the 4,000, it's more of a flat basket. So these are like large hampers that they're gathering up the leftovers, and they each one have one full basket left over, and they go, and they're sitting there with Jesus. I'm sure they just had a great feast together with the Lord after that long, hard day. And I can imagine that these 12 men were just ready for a good night's sleep. They were ready just to kick back and rest. Again, they were exhausted, but their spirits are full, their bellies are full. But all of a sudden, Jesus will literally make them, force them to get into their fishing boat and start heading towards Capernaum. They're going to cross the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. So we're going to pick up here in Matthew 14, verse 22. And this is a good thing for us to remember. You know, we're coming into a new year. Some of us look at 2018, 2019. Oh, man, that was like the feeding of the 5,000. You know, we're stuffed. We were full. Everything was great. Then 2020 hit. Life's stunk. <laughs> 2021, not much better in so many ways. What's got God got in store for us? Well, this is a great picture of you got hard times, good times, difficulties, storms of life hit. So he makes them get in the boat. Verse 22, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Again, the sun's getting ready to go down. They're just tired. They're just full. And these disciples are exhausted. But both here and in Mark's gospel, we're told that immediately he makes them get in the boat. That means with haste, he made them get in this boat and, and go to the other side. Why the urgency? Why would Jesus make them get in the boat after this long, difficult day? Well, this is where things get interesting in the scene here because a number of factors come into play. We're told by the Apostle John in the Gospel of John that after Jesus feeds the thousands, 15 to 20,000 people, this amazing meal, it tells us, look at these verses in John 6, verse 14 and 15. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said... This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. 
Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. And so these people wanted to make Jesus their king because they now believe that he is their promised Messiah. So why did he make the disciples get in the boat and he sneaks up on the mountain by himself? Because he knew these multitudes of people, their motives were wrong. You know, they didn't want to humble themselves before him and serve him as the king of kings. They wanted him to be king because he filled their bellies with food. That's why. He wanted to meet their greatest needs of all. The, the greatest needs, not the physical need of meeting your dietary obligations. The greatest need any of us have is to have our sins forgiven, to know that when we die, we're going to heaven, to be with the Lord for eternity. And so their motives in trying to make him king here were not righteous motives, but they were motivated by their flesh. Later on, Jesus will tell the same multitude the very next day they're going to catch up to the disciples and Jesus. And this is what he tells them the next day, John 6, 26. Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And so in their minds, they, you know, were just happy to be with him because we get a free meal out of the deal. Fifteen to 20,000 people, they want him to be king because he filled their bellies with food. Nothing new under the sun. The same attitude is all around us today. I mean, you think about it, most of our colleges and universities have been pushing the idea that capitalism is evil. Socialism, communism is good. I mean, look at how much our culture has changed around us. We used to say be free, but that's quickly being replaced by get it free or I want it free. But here's the simplest way to look at econ uh, economics. This is from God's perspective. Socialism says what's yours is mine. And that works as long as a person with the money still has money, but it, when it runs out, it doesn't work anymore. Capitalism says what's mine is mine, but if you're not careful, it does and will lead to arrogance, self-centeredness, emptiness. But it's through Christianity that we can say what's mine is from God, and He has distributed to me so that I can give to others. That's the way God's economy works. He will bless us so that we can be a blessing to others. It's when we have God's perspective on these things that we realize we're just clay pots and get God's hands. He's the one that fills us up overflowing, and it's the overflow that will minister to those around us. So we, we want to be vessels of honor that he fills up. And in turn, we pour out and we can bless those around us. By now we should know you can never outgive God because he is just looking for people he can pour into and then pour out of. You'll never be in want, you'll never be in need when you trust the Lord and know that he will meet your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We saw this last week. Remember what we saw. Jesus is the creator. He is the one who was the manufacturer, so to speak, when he takes the little Lunchable and he just turns it into multitudes of fish and bread. And the disciples, 
They were just the distributors. They took what Jesus gave them and gave to others. And when all was said and done, they had a big basket left over for themselves. God will supply all of our needs. So no matter what our government does or what it does not do, don't put your hope in Washington, D.C. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We need to keep doing what he's called us to do. And the wonderful thing about Jesus is whatever he calls us to do, he will always be faithful to enable us to do what he's called us to do. He'll never say, do this, and then not give you what you need to do it. He will always supply us whatever we need to do what he's called us to do. So nobody can force Jesus to be the king that they want him to be, but Jesus is the ultimate king of kings. He's the ultimate Lord of lords who we need to bow down to, who we need to humbly submit to, who we need to humbly obey. The rulers of this world who have rejected the Lord, they're going to end up, they'll be brought down to the pit. They will be trampled down by the Lord because they have trampled down God's people. They've misrepresented the Lord. They've misrepresented the, the power and authority God has given them. And they've used their God-given abilities to destroy lives instead of build up lives. So again, when I say there's nothing new under the sun, Israel's leaders are doing the exact same thing our leaders and the world leaders are doing today. Nothing new under the sun. Listen to what God says. This is Isaiah 28, starting in verse 14. It says, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. So we could send this off to D.C. That would be good too. Because you have said, We have made a covenant with death, and Sheol, or hell, we are in agreement. Really? When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us, that's their arrogance, for we have made lies our refuge. And under falsehood, we have hidden ourselves. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, that's Jesus, a sure foundation, whoever believes will not act hastily. Also, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet or the plumb line. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. The waters will overflow the hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. In other words, you're not going to escape death. You know, you're going to face it if you reject the Lord. Those of us in the Lord, we will not die. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Whoever lives and believes in me will not die. Do you believe this? That's what Jesus asks. And so he goes, I'll annul that covenant you made with death because you will die and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will be trampled down by it. So again, the bottom line is this. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep building your life on the only sure foundation, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. All the powers of this world, led by Satan, and during the Great Tribulation, led by the Antichrist, will believe their own lies, that they will rule the world without God. But in the end, Jesus will return from heaven. He will set up his kingdom on earth. He will rule and reign for a thousand years, and it's going to be glorious when he's in charge. He'll destroy all of his enemies with the sword that proceeds from his mouth, which is simply the word of God. And very quickly and decisively, he will wipe out the wicked, the rulers, those who are 
rebelling against God, and he will establish that kingdom that will last for 1,000 years. All this to say, this is why Jesus tells the disciples, get in the boat. Get in the boat, go to the other side. I'm not going to be king right now. They want me to be the physical king. That's not why I'm here. So you need to leave hastily. Get out of here quickly. And Jesus goes up on the mountain away from everybody. Look at verse 23. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. So after, again, he makes the disciples get in the boat, and they start rowing to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It's only seven miles wide at its widest point. It's about 13 miles long. It's just a big lake, the Sea of Galilee. And uh, after dispersing the crowds of people, he goes up on the mountaintop, which us in Colorado would say he went on a hill. <laughs> because it's not a really high mountaintop that he was on, but he goes on this big hill over there. And from his vantage point, he is going to watch the disciples as they go into the Sea of Galilee. And we're going to find something very interesting here. When we put the Gospels of Mark and John together with Matthew's account here, we find that they feed all the multitudes on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He sends them towards Capernaum on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And it's also close to sunset when he says, get in the boat. And uh, it's a relatively short journey. It should have only taken him maybe an hour to get across there. Now, Jesus could have been up on that hillside, we'll see, for probably six hours because he's got a disperse the multitudes, he climbs up the top of the hill, and then he sits there and he prays and he gets to watch what his disciples are going to go through. Keep this in mind because Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he made them get in the boat. He knew exactly what they were going to go through. He knew exactly how he was going to handle it. He knew exactly when to come to them, because he will in a moment. He knew just when to come to their rescue and all the while, he had his eyes on them because he loved them and he would protect them. But they had to go through this storm in order for them to grow in their faith and their trust in Jesus. So what was he praying when he's on this hillside, the top of this hill? We don't know. A good guess would be he's interceding for his disciples because he always lives to make intercession for us. He knew these guys were going to be in for the ride of their lives here in a moment. We can take great comfort in that fact as well, because as his disciples, we know that Jesus loves us. We know he sees every struggle we go through. We know every storm we're in, he's watching over us. He knows the difficulties that tomorrow might bring. But praise the Lord, he is on our side. He's watching and he's with us through every storm. Keep that in mind. Look at verse 24. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Again, in Mark's gospel, it tells us that Jesus is watching them while they are straining at rowing. In other words, all of a sudden, they get in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, maybe three, three and a half miles into their little journey, and this strong wind just hits them. They think they're going to drown. They're going to start freaking out. 
The next verse tells us it's during the fourth watch when Jesus will come to them, which is three to six in the morning, the fourth watch. They go at sunset. So they're out there for like seven or eight hours just trying to keep their boat going into the wind so they don't sink. They don't want to get flipped over. So they're, they worked all day. They thought they were going to just chill that night, sleep, rest with Jesus. Now they've been doing this for, you know, seven or eight hours. Crazy. If they would have walked to Capernaum, it would have taken them about an hour and a half. And yet they're in the middle of this because they're obeying the Lord. Keep that in mind because some people might look at the disciples and say, well, where's God in all this? You're in the middle of a storm. Your life is a mess. There must be sin in your life. You're being punished by God because you're doing something wrong. No, these guys are right where they're supposed to be, right in the middle of God's will. And so where's God? Well, he's got his eye on them. He's got everything in control, and he's about to blow their minds. Look at verse 25. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. These guys are terrified when they see Jesus walking towards them. They think they're seeing a ghost. Now, it's interesting how many people, and you know, I'm sure we've all done it too, how many people fail to recognize Jesus when he's right there with them, right in front of them. Remember when Jesus rose from the tomb that very first Easter you know, Sunday morning, he's risen from the grave. Mary Magdalene's the first one at the tomb. And what does she think? It's the gardener. She's talking to the gardener. She thinks, no, it's Jesus. Later that afternoon, the two men on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus joins up with them. And they're like, what are you guys talking about? Oh, man, we were hoping Jesus was going to be the one. And they're all discouraged. They walk all the way seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they're like, man, were you the only guy? You're the only stranger, they said that doesn't know what happened in Jerusalem? So they think, he's a stranger? No, it's Jesus. Uh, again, we've all done the same thing. We're going through a hard time in life, tragedies all around us, illness and sickness and death is upon us, and we might think, Lord, where are you? I don't understand why these things are happening, but as his disciples, we need to walk by faith and not by sight. When we don't understand what's going on, that's when we fall back on what we do understand. And what we should all understand is Jesus loves us. That he'll never leave us or forsake us. I'm with you always, he says, even to the end of the age. We should all know John 10, verses 27 and 28, where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. What does it mean to perish? You mean to die? No. No, it means to be destroyed for eternity. Remember John 3, 16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish. That means to be destroyed for eternity. So you put your faith and trust in Him, you're not going to be destroyed. Yeah, you'll die physically, but you're going to be in the presence of the Lord for eternity. So they shall never perish because He's given us eternal life. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And, and it's when we have that confidence in the Lord and our faith and trust is in Him, we can go through any storm this world throws at us 
and know for certain that Jesus is right here with us every step of the way. Somehow he will get us safely to the other side. This is also when verses like Romans 8, 38, and 39 should come into play in your mind as well. For I am persuaded, Paul says, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing like COVID-19 in a Wuhan lab, <laughs> nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So a lot of people are freaking out. Oh, no, the world's in decline. The world's this and that, and we've got this pandemic all over. You do, God's in control. He knows exactly what's going on. He's watching over us. Here the Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So remember, he's, they're freaking out. Oh, no, it's a ghost. And it says they're in fear. Maybe John wrote this. Oh, he did write it many years later, but thinking back on, it's a ghost. No, it's Jesus. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. It's not a ghost, it's Jesus. Now watch what he says in verse 27. Very significant. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Now this verse is remarkable for many reasons. First of all, immediately he says, don't be afraid. You don't need to be fearful. In the same way, Jesus immediately hears us and he responds to our cries when we're crying out in fear about something or another. But again, I often don't hear him because I'm too busy trying to figure things out on my own. Oh no, this problem hits, so i got to do everything I can to make it right. i got to do everything I can to try to fix it. But when we stop and listen to His voice speaking over and above the howling winds, the waves that are all crashing around us, as we hear Him, He'll say like the same thing He says to His disciples, be of good cheer. It literally means take courage. That's the exhortation. That's the encouragement. Take courage. Be of good cheer. What do you mean cheer up? I'm in a storm. Why do you say cheer up? We've been battling this storm all night. We're about to drown. we got nothing left. We're exhausted. We're done. Here's the key to the encouragement that they receive, and this should be the key for our encouragement as well. Jesus then says, It is I. Do not be afraid. This is the key to receiving the encouragement from Jesus, knowing who it is that is speaking to you. It is I. That's not the best translation in the Greek, because what he says in the Greek is ego emi. You've heard that before. It means I am. He's using the eternal name of God here. Don't be afraid. I am. I am here. I am in your midst. The great I am. That's the eternal name of God. Remember when Moses first met God at the burning bush and he wanted to know God's name? Exodus 3.14, it says, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am 
has sent me to you. And the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament Hebrew is translated into Greek around 250 BC. It's ego eme, I am. Here Jesus in the Greek is saying, I am. That's why you don't need to freak out. I am the eternal name of God. I am is all you will ever need. He's the eternal one. Revelation 1.8, Jesus makes this astonishing claim. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. With the Lord, it's all now. He was, He is, He is to come. That blows my little BB brain because I can't figure that out. Jesus is God the Son, come in human flesh. When he says, I am, that's why you don't need to freak out because he's God. He's in control. As God, he's with me wherever I go. He's with you wherever you go. He's on the other side of the world with the brothers and sisters in Christ, wherever they go. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us because he is God. So we don't need to be afraid because Jesus, the great I am, is with us, dwelling in us. Throughout the Gospel of John, we hear Jesus using that eternal name, ego eme, I am, over and over again. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the vine, the true vine. I am the good shepherd. Remember in uh, John 8, 8, 58, where um, he says, before Abraham was, I am well, the Jews knew exactly what he was saying because it tells us they took up stones to kill him. And then he'll say a little bit later, so why do you want to kill me? For what good work do you want to kill me? Not for any good works you do, but because you being a man make yourself God. The Jews weren't like, yeah, we're not sure who this guy is. They knew exactly what he was claiming to be, that he is the I am. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same Yesterday, as far back yesterday as you want to go, eternity, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, as God, He does not change, He cannot change, He is the same. Listen, if you're in a tough situation in your life today, listen to Jesus' voice, take courage. It is I, I am, I am the Almighty One, I am God, I am with you. And like many of you, I need to hear that from time to time. Otherwise, the storms in life have a way of overwhelming us, have a way of crashing around us and getting our focus off of the Lord. And we start to fear, we might have doubt, we get confused. But check out what happens next. He says, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Verse 28 and Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, yeah, like who else is it going to be? Seriously, if it's you, yeah, who else would it be? Of course it's, anyway, he said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Isn't that amazing? This is a, a tremendous step of faith, especially from a guy whose name means what? little stone. <laughs> I'm a little rock, but I want to walk on water. That's an oxymoron, but amazing. He doesn't say, if it's you, let me swim to you. If it's you, let me, you know, row the boat over to you. No, if it's you, let me come to you on the water. Look at verse 29. So he, Jesus said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, 
He walked on the water to go to Jesus. Amazing. Jesus permits Peter to come to him. And that's all Jesus had to say is come. Just come. He spoke the word, come, and Peter steps out of the boat, and he actually starts to walk on the water. I wonder what the other 11 guys are thinking. Oh, little stone, be careful. <laughs> I don't know if you should do that. You know, they might have been saying, go for it, Peter. Be careful, though. I mean, amazing. Peter's the only one that said, Lord, if it's you, let me come out to you. And he's walking on the water. I've been on the Sea of Galilee four different times. And the first time I went, it was with, the, they call it a familiarization tour with other pastors. And so you go through all Israel real fast and you're seeing everything and just kind of get an overview. And so we're on the Sea of Galilee. That first time I was on the Sea of Galilee and yeah, you get some of these pastors. I was thinking about it, but two of these guys are like, let's try it. Step out of the boat. <laughs> and you're like this high off the water and they bloop right down and sank. And we all laughed. It was great watching them go under these two pastors. And once we stopped laughing, the, the leader of our group said, well, you made two mistakes. The first is you didn't ask the Lord if you should. And the second is you didn't hear him say come. <laughs> so that's important to realize. That's the lesson we need to learn. Whatever we're hoping to do, wherever we're hoping to go, First of all, ask the Lord if He wants you to do it. And then secondly, wait for the Lord to open the door for you. And when He does, that's when you step out in faith. When He opens the door, nobody can shut it, and then you can go through with confidence. When He opened the door five years ago for me to go with Emily to Northeast India, and yeah, that was like the last thing on my radar, go to Northeast India. Yeah, a big tall white guy with all these people over there. But God opened the door, and God does above and beyond anything we can hope or imagine. So you just go through the door, and then you find yourself going, Wow, Lord, this is amazing. I can't believe that this is wonderful. And God can do, again, above and beyond anything we could hope for or imagine. I love what Jesus says to the faithful church of Philadelphia. Look at this verse in Revelation 3, 8. Jesus tells him, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. And no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. And why I love this verse is because Jesus is the one who opens the doors for them. That he says no one can shut. The faithfulness in this church is seen not because they were big and powerful and wealthy. Not at all. But Jesus commanded them and used them in spite of the fact, he says, you have little strength. In other words, they knew in themselves they were weak, but they also knew how strong the Lord was. That's where your faith comes in. Because I, I can't do anything on my own. You can't do anything on your own. But when God says, I want you to do this, and then you realize he will supply what you need to do it, then you can step out in faith and see God work in tremendous ways. Their faith was strong because they kept God's word and they did not deny his name. In other words, these guys were not ashamed of the gospel of Christ and they were not ashamed to be identified with Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so God opens the doors. Here's Peter. He's stepping out in faith. He's trusting the, the word of the Lord. Come, 
And with the little strength he has left, after a grueling night in the storm, he starts walking on water. Amazing. But here comes another important lesson. Just because God does something miraculous doesn't mean the storm's going to stop. Look at verse 30. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, that's an interesting phrase, he sees the wind is loud. Okay? He was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me! Notice that even in the midst of this awesome miracle, the storm does not cease. And that's often the case when we're going through a trial. So often we're looking for the storm to be over. But the point here, the lesson here is, keep your eyes on Jesus no matter what. Notice it says again, when Peter saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. When we get our eyes off of Jesus and onto the trial, that's when we become more afraid. We become more susceptible to fear and other things. Again, we need to focus on the great I am, Jesus. That's when we get you know things from his perspective instead of getting into a bigger mess by getting our eyes off of Jesus. Here's another important lesson we need to learn from this. Notice it says there in verse 30, and beginning to sink, Peter cried out to him. That's a good time to call out to the Lord when things first start to go sideways. Some people are just stubborn. You know, they don't just wait until they start to go under. You know, they think, I'm just going to wait. And then pretty soon they're like, glug, 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 glug. Then they're, it's like, no, when you start beginning to sink, call out to Jesus. Don't be stubborn like the prophet Jonah. That always cracks me up. Jonah, stubborn, running away from God. They throw him overboard because the lot fell to him. God sends the whale. He doesn't call out to God for three days. Three days, he's in the belly of the whale. He's got you know sloppy, juicy stuff all around him. Plankton, seaweed, dead fish. And it takes him three days before he finally calls out to the Lord. And God prepared the great fish to go to the shore. Blip, barf him out. And then he's like bleached white. Seaweed all over him, goes to Nineveh. Uh, you guys, you're going to die in 40 days unless you repent. And they're probably like, whoa, look at this guy. That's freaky. And so they all repented. They get saved. He didn't even love them. He hated those people. But don't be stubborn like Jonah. Peter has enough sense to cry out to him at the beginning, it says, when he first started to sink. The most important lesson I see here is to always remember who you need to call out to in your time of trouble. That's Jesus. He calls out, Lord, save me. I like that short prayer. Some people think, well, you just need to get this big book of prayer and let's go through this liturgical prayer and, oh, great father up there in heaven and think it's going to take you two hours to go through this prayer. Then maybe God will hear you. He looks at your heart more than he cares about the knowledge you have. He's looking at your heart. God, I need you. Just help. It's the shortest prayer in the Bible. And Jesus will reach down and save him. Look how he reacts here. Verse 31. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Again, we see the word immediately. With haste, Jesus reached down, caught him by his hand, lifted him up. Again, what a beautiful picture of His grace. Uh, 
his power, his love. Jesus doesn't sit there and say, well, let's let you sink a little deeper, Peter, and then I'll help you. Let's wait until you're almost dead, and then I'll help you. By the way, Peter actually got close enough to Jesus. So he walked a ways. I don't know how far away Jesus was when they thought they were seeing a ghost, but he walks almost next to him because Jesus had to reach over and pull him up. So he actually walked on water. Amazing. Jesus is so good to us. Even when we stumble like Peter, even when we fall, he reaches out, he saves us. He will restore what the enemy has tried to devour. Now, when Jesus says to Peter here, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Don't think of Jesus rebuking Peter. He's not rebuking him here. When you look at this in the original language, Jesus is sincerely asking Peter, think about what just happened. Peter, you asked if you could come to me on the water, and I said, yes, come. That's what I said. You, I said, come, and you stepped out. You started coming to me. And then when he says, why did you doubt? The word doubt means, very simply, to take two different positions. One position, you're looking at me, you're focused on me, you've set your heart, your mind on things above where Christ is seated, not on the things of the earth. You're walking to me and it's, you're, you're on water. Amazing. But you took another position. Oh no, the storm, the wind. And he starts getting double-minded. Remember, James says, don't be double-minded in all your ways. Put your focus on the Lord. Keep your eyes on Him. Another way to look at it is, don't overthink everything. That's what so many of us are guilty of. You know, a situation comes into our life, and then we try to figure out in our own intellect, how can we make this work? How can I fix this? I'm always trying to fix it. Elizabeth will say something like, yeah, I'm doing the. Let me try to fix it. I don't say those words, but that's what I jump into, a fix-it mode. She goes, I don't want you to fix it. I just want you to hear me. I just want you to listen. I mean, I don't know a lot of you maybe that way. Jesus saying, Peter, just keep your focus on me. Don't take a different position. Don't doubt. Finally, verse 32. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those who were in the boat came and worshipped him. Okay, if Jesus is not God, this is idolatry. The JWs will say, oh, Jesus never accepted worship. Really? That's kind of what it says right here. They worshipped him, and he received their worship. If he was not God, then it is idolatry, but they worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, again, when you put the different gospel you know, scenarios together, look at this verse in John 6.21. It says, Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. So he does another miracle. So Peter gets in the boat. They lift Jesus. He comes in the boat. Boom, just like that. I like to travel that way. Immediately they're in Capernaum. That quick. That's how we're going to fly around in our new resurrection bodies. It's going to be amazing. That's when they say to Jesus, truly you are the Son of God. Not just walking on the water, but that instant transportation to the other side. They now realize that who Jesus is is more important than what Jesus does miraculously. And that's important for all of us, to know who Jesus is. It's more important than what you think He needs to do for you. We don't need more things from Jesus. What we need is a closer relationship with Jesus. 
That's the bottom line. The trials come. And when they do, we don't need to freak out. We can look back and see how faithful the Lord has always been. Look back. Times when you were like, I don't know if I'm going to make it another day. I was just talking to somebody this morning. that They're like, in the hospital, don't know if we're going to make it. And he's doing great. God got him through. But it draws him closer to Jesus. That's the bottom line. Jesus is faithful. He always has been. He always will be. These disciples, minus Judas Iscariot, but the other 11, they will learn this lesson very well. Okay, 5,000 men, it says, that they, Jesus fed miraculously. Oh, wonderful. Miracles. And then a storm. Then a trial. Oh, no, we're freaking out. Don't be afraid. How does that carry over? About a year later, Jesus ascends up into glory. About a week after he ascends, the day of Pentecost. Holy Spirit comes upon them. What does Peter do? They come out of the upper room, preaches the gospel. 3,000 people get saved. That's in chapter 2 of Acts. Chapter 3 of Acts, Peter and John are walking to the beautiful gate at the temple there. And they see a man begging for alms. Peter looks at him and says, silver and gold I don't have. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. Wow, everybody's excited. They're thinking Peter's something great. They want to lift him up. And Peter says, no, 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 I'm just a human. I'm just a man like you. It's Jesus that did this. You put him on the cross, he tells him. What happens? 2,000 more people get saved. So in Acts 2 and 3, 5,000 people are saved. We just saw in chapter 14, 5,000 men were fed. Then the trial hit. What happens in chapter 4 and 5 of Acts? Peter and John get arrested. They get threatened. They get beaten. They're told, don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. The trials will come. God will do an awesome thing. Just know there'll be a trial, but Jesus is faithful to see you through. It is I. Don't be afraid. I don't know what 2022 has in store for us. I'm thinking my initial thought, we're that much closer to the rapture. Amen. But if the Lord says, not yet, it is I, don't be afraid. Whatever 2022 has for us, we go through it, walking by faith, trusting Him, no matter how crazy, how weird this world gets, how nuts our country goes, keep your eyes on Jesus. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He is with you always to the end of this age. Amen.